This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back in a new episode of Radar, our podcast of Nextworks. It's been a few months since we had our last episode, so we're very excited to be back here. And from now on, we're going to be back every month with a new episode. And this time, I am here together with Laurence van Elegem. Hi, Laurence. Hi. Julie Vens de Vos. Hey, Julie. Hey, Steven. And Peter Hinzen. Hey, Peter. Hello, hello. And Pascal isn't here. He's in India on tour with one of our clients, so he's going to be back next time. And if you've been following us on social media, you've saw that we were at many, many cool locations. We're super happy that we can travel again and do our inspiration tours again. And Peter and Julie, I saw that you guys were in the US uh, last month and had a visit to Walmart, uh, the largest company in the world. Anything new that you learned there that you can share with our audience here? Well, um, it was really nice to be back with Walmart. Um, it was the first time post-pandemic that I had an opportunity to visit them again. And I am um, stronger in my belief than ever that this is an absolute phoenix. I mean, it was wonderful to see this company stronger than ever. Of course, the pandemic was an enormous challenge for an organization like that. I mean, just the supply chain issues were incredible. But of course, post-pandemic, we saw rising inflation. So there's never a dull moment for a player like this. But amazing to see the level of data being used inside the organization. Incredible to see how automation is actually going forward. Uh, we saw really beautiful automation in the stores constantly scanning all the articles and seeing what needs to be replenished and, and needs to be done. There's an enormous amount of activity that happened in Walmart where a big part of their real estate was put into use for e-commerce and distribution centers. So their e-commerce is growing like crazy. We saw drones being used, and according to Walmart, they have a thousand times more drone use than Amazon. But the reason we were actually there was that we wanted to spend some time with Walmart, not just on disruption or innovation, but actually on sustainability. And we had an amazing session with Walmart on what they're doing in terms of SDGs. And just to give you an idea, Walmart has pledged that they're going to reduce one gigaton, that is one billion metric tons of greenhouse gases by 2030. And I think this is really incredible because you not only see that they are the largest company in the world, they're willing to actually use their power to do good. And you know what they can do in terms of enforcing the you know, climate issues onto their supply chain and what they can do you know, to actually create a better world is absolutely stunning. So we had an, uh, an amazing session. We were blown away by the innovation but I think even more by their absolute tenacity in terms of their issues that they want to solve, the SDG topics that they really want to tackle, and their absolute climate ambitions. So it was wonderful to be back in Bentonville, Arkansas. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, and there's nothing like going to those companies and really seeing the place and hearing those stories at first hand. So for people who want to have a similar experience, we have this brand new inspiration calendar on our Nextworks website with eight new tours for 2023. I'm going to do one in LA about customer experience. We're going to have one 
in May that I'm going to do with Lucien Engelen about the future of healthcare. We're going to India. So there's so many cool things that we want to explore next year. So we hope that you guys will join. And, and actually, the first tour that I'm going to do myself again is in Paris. It's in November, just a few weeks from now, about the metaverse. And one of the companies that we will visit in Paris is, of course, Meta, because we want to see what this huge player is doing in terms of innovation in this field. And I want to kick off this radar episode with news from Meta. They are launching an AI video tool. And it's a little bit like Dolly. I think most of you have seen and heard from Dolly, where you can just type in a few words and then Dolly creates an image. You can say, I want to see a monkey playing basketball. And then you're going to see a monkey playing basketball and you can have multiple examples. And it's always a new form of art that they launch. It's super, super cool. And, you know, you can ask the craziest things and then Dolly creates it. But it's a picture. Meta now is launching a video tool, an AI video tool that will create a video based on the input that you give it. Um, they launch a few demonstration videos and don't get super excited because these videos now can only last for like five seconds. So it's pretty short. They're pretty simple if you watch them. But the video, even though that it's only five seconds, is far more complex than generating a picture. So this is a new step that they are creating, and it shows how we're advancing in artificial intelligence. But when I saw this from Meta, I got super excited, not, not for what they're launching today or at this time, but about the potential. Now, imagine that you could create a 30-second advertisement with an AI tool. Imagine the possibilities. That means that every small company in the world could create its own 30-second video and then launch that on a platform like Facebook or on YouTube. It creates opportunities for you know, a large number of smaller companies who cannot afford advertising agencies to create their own videos. And today, you still have to type in what you like, but just think one step further. Just imagine that you would have a tool where you just say, look, this is my business, this is where I live, these are my kind of customers, and then based on the data of your audience, that a platform like Facebook could randomly generate a commercial or a video that is in line with the message that you want to share, so that it's fully data-based, and that maybe they even don't just launch one video, but they launch 1,000 videos fully personalized to your audience. That could be the future of online advertising. And that creates enormous opportunities for smaller businesses. But think about the consequences for advertising agencies. The day that a platform like Facebook could automatically generate thousands of videos personalized for each one of your individual clients, I mean, then what's the role of an advertising agency? So I'm really curious to see what the plans are of Facebook in this field, but it's clear that they're working on AI and video. And I don't think they're just doing that for the sake of the experiment. I think they're looking to reinvent their own business model here. Yeah, and, and maybe just to add on to that, I think um, it was interesting to see the announcement. Uh, not entirely clear, I think, what the model behind is going to be. But one of the thoughts I had is, if you're a graphic designer or you're a film director, how do you look at that? Huh? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, Dali 2 is really nice to play with. Huh? but it's not 100% perfect. But what I've seen is that you have more sophisticated versions of that, which can actually generate things that are absolutely insanely beautiful. 
and actually things that could be used, say, for example, in advertisements or, you know, if you want to design a logo or something. But mm-hmm. if you're a graphic designer and you're in school today and you see that, I mean, wh- what is your reaction? Do you think, oh, shit, I mean, <laughs> my job is basically going away? If you're a film director, you see the stuff that Meta is doing, is it actually, you know, going to have a similar impact. And what I found interesting is, I don't know if you saw that, Stephen, but uh, recently we had an AI artwork that actually won a prize in a competition. And uh, what happened is it was an, an art competition. It was in the Colorado State Fair. And somebody submitted a work of art. And it's really, really beautiful. It was called uh, a space opera theater. And what you see is an immensely beautiful painting But actually, the judges didn't know that it was a work generated by an AI. Okay. And it got first prize. So the guy who submitted it got $300. And then the other artist complained. He said, it's not fair because it's not made by him. It's made by an AI. And the guy who actually submitted it said, well, you know, that doesn't matter. I mean, I still had to tell the computer what to do. Mm-hmm. And it's very similar to mastering a certain brush technique. I have mastered an AI technique. I know how to tell the AI what to do. And what is interesting is that in the end, the judges, when they found out that it was an AI, they said, well, you know what? Even if we wouldn't have known, we would have still given him the top prize because we thought it was a really, really beautiful work of art. So I think that kind of discussion we're going to have there is absolutely fascinating. Could I just add something about, um, Stephen, you were talking about metaverse advertising. And the, the only thought I had there was, well, what if Web3 and the metaverse were to merge at a certain point? then the users will get to own their own data and normally Meta will not have access to it. So you talked about personalizing different videos, but it will be difficult if Meta has no access to the data of the users. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, I did some research recently, just as a fun fact to add, about Metaverse platforms. And people are always saying, yeah, the Metaverse will probably be won by the big companies like Meta. But... It's true that you know that Facebook has 2.9 billion users and then you have a Roblox that is nothing compared with that. That's one of the biggest metaverse platforms, which has 203 million users. So you think, okay, meta is going to win here. But when you realize that the meta horizon suite has only 300 thousand users per month. So that's nothing compared with Roblox. And so I really know that Meta has different budgets than Roblox, but I thought that was really fascinating to see the big gap in monthly active users between both of those. Yeah, that's true. Well, the, the challenge, I think, for anyone playing in the Metaverse will be to create an interface that is so user-friendly that we're not talking about hundreds of millions of users, but about billions. Huh? And we haven't seen that one yet, but you know, you, you see how fast things can change and, and Roblox is an interesting platform to look at. Did you see, Peter, how Walmart, to talk about Walmart again, went on Roblox and that they give a speech there? What, what do you think about that? Well, honestly, I'm not convinced that this is really, really, <laughs> maybe more of a PR stunt. I mean, today, yeah, I Metaverse I is everybody has to be on the Metaverse and they have to do something mm-hmm. cute and, and Roblox was a good idea. 
but I'm not sure if it's going to really, really drive a lot of traffic there. But you know, PR wise, it was a it was a good stunt. But I I don't yeah. expect more. You know. Yeah, they were all over the news. Evil question, Stephen. Evil question. Evil question. But <laughs> I was a, just I thinking think, about it with Laurence, her, her feedback here. Yeah, and it, it definitely shows what we see at Walmart. And I think the the biggest difference, as Peter also said, but a few years ago, it's. They're really humble and they're really trying. Mm -hmm. How many times they just said, like, we're so grateful for our competitors and our partners to learn from. And I mean, you have to give them the credit for trying, I guess. That's a great quote. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Peter, you had news about Twitter that you wanted to share with us. Well, I mean, the, the soap with Twitter has been going on like crazy. So mm -hmm. eventually I was in the U.S. last week when... Uh, Elon said, you know what, I'm going to buy it anyway. I mean, that was a big relief for a lot of people because this is just before the big trial was going to happen. Uh, if, if you remember, first Elon said, I'm going to buy Twitter. And then he said, I'm not going to buy Twitter because there's so many fake accounts. And uh, but, but people weren't serious if he was really hesitant about the number of people or users on Twitter or if he was getting cold feet. Uh, and especially financially, I mean, the last couple of months have been absolutely hell for the valuations of tech companies. So maybe the $44 billion he was going to spend was a little bit on the pricey side. But last week, maybe to everyone's surprise, he said, you know what? Um, forget it. No more lawsuit. I'm going to buy the company after all. But um, the moment he did that, the speculations came back. Why is he actually doing that? Because... Let's be honest. I mean, you have a lot of followers on Twitter, Stephen, so do I, but nothing happens on Twitter anymore. It's like a dead platform. And the question is, you know, can a dead cat bounce or not? Nobody knows. But what is fascinating is uh, the moment that Elon said, I'm going to buy it, the whole speculations about the super app actually came back. Mm -hmm. And I think this is kind of interesting because it's that whole Project X. There is something really weird about Elon Musk and X because if you remember, the very first company that he ever had was called X.com and that became PayPal. You know, X.com was basically a payment platform and didn't work for some reason. He changed the name into PayPal. And then what happened is they sold PayPal to eBay and then you know, PayPal eventually got spun out. But one of the terms is that a few years after that, Elon actually asked if he could have X.com back. So he is still the owner of X.com. If you go to X.com, so you type in HTTP X.com, all you get is an X, that's it. I mean, it's the only thing that's on that website. It's just a little X. But it's something that probably has sentimental value for the man. Yeah? But it's not just X.com. The Model X, I mean, SpaceX, <laughs> and then the very strange name that he gave his son, which is XAIII12, <laughs> yeah? starts with an X as well. So the guy is fascinated by X in some reason. And what happened is the moment that he bought Twitter or said he was going to buy Twitter, he put out a tweet and he said, buying Twitter is an accelerant to creating X, the everything app. And at that moment, of course, you know, all hell broke loose on Twitter because people said, aha, now we know what he wants to do. He wants to basically use the number of Twitter followers and turn it into a super app. And honestly, that might not be a bad idea because I don't think he's going to save Twitter by making some tweets, whether you can delete or edit a tweet. I mean, Jesus, that's not going to revive that platform. 
But if you would take the installed base of, what is it, three, 400 million users, I mean, debatable least, how yeah. many there are, yeah. but they are probably not bad users. I mean, mm -hmm. probably the a lot of people- The active ones are really active. Huh? The active ones are really active. The active ones have a lot of influence. The active ones are probably yeah, not the poorest people on the internet. I mean, mm -hmm. they probably have means and have access and have a network. And if you can convince these people to say, you know what? It used to be a messaging platform or a communication platform or a PR platform, but we're now going to build apps on top of that. And Twitter could be an app where you have more than just messaging. But I mean, let's start with money. I mean, if he's going to revive his old idea of X.com and use Twitter as a platform to send money, then all of a sudden it starts to become interesting. Mm -hmm. If that money isn't just you know, fiat currency, but crypto, which is you know, one of his darlings as well, that becomes an interesting, rich financial platform. And then if you can build apps on top of that, I don't know, catch a ride in a Tesla. I don't know. I mean, a little bit of an Uber for the Tesla fans. It's something that he can easily do. You know, you could actually think that this might be an opportunity to build a Western super app platform. Yeah, you could add e-commerce to it as well, Peter. You I could add e-commerce to it. Every brand e-commerce could be really interesting. Absolutely, and all the brands are very active on Twitter already, so it might be an easy reach out for him. And I honestly believe that this could be a real opportunity because we all know the super apps in China, I mean, the Alipays and the WeChats, but there is no Western super app. And a number of companies have tried it. One of the most important ones is PayPal. I mean, PayPal said, we want to become a super app company. We're not just going to offer payments, we're going to offer crypto, and we're going to offer services, and nothing happened. And the reason is because people use PayPal to pay, mm -hmm. and all the big brands don't have a vested interest to do something with that. So I really believe that this could be the beginning. I think if he says this is an accelerant to X the everything app, I really think that Elon has the capability to do something really spectacular with Twitter. And I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of months or a couple of, maybe a couple of years from now, we're going to look back and think, my God, that was 44 billion well spent. <laughs> I mean, remember when Zuckerberg bought WhatsApp for 26 billion, we thought, what, what a stupid idea. Now it's probably one of the best moves ever. And if you can actually already buy 400 million users and build a super app, I think he is probably going to have a, a wonderful time building that. Uh, it's, it's an interesting thought. And the only question I have is why didn't Mark Zuckerberg try yet to create that kind of super app? I mean, if there's one platform that has the opportunity to do it, that is more visual, that is more active, that has a global reach, it's Facebook with all its partner and sister companies. Yeah? But they try, it is my feeling, like in, in certain, certain markets, like in India and Brazil, they try to add services, but it never really took off. So it's easier said than done to create a super app, is my feeling. It's probably true. But I think one of the things is they tried a couple of things in finance. That really didn't work. Mm -hmm. Although, for example, Brazil has been using WhatsApp for a long time to transfer money. So they tried and dabbled into it. But the interesting thing is that Elon probably understands the financial markets a lot better than Zuckerberg. I mean, he started PayPal, so he mm -hmm. understands what financial transactions are. So that is an added value. And the other thing is that Elon has an extremely polarizing effect. So I think if Elon says, I'm going to build a super app, you probably have, I don't know, 100 million people already who think, yeah, I'm going to use this. 
Whereas Mark Zuckerberg, there's a lot of, nah, not really sure, you know? But mm-hmm. I'm sure that out of the 400 million, 300 are going to say, I will never use that. But if he can start with 100 million loyal followers who would do anything he wants, then I think he probably is onto something. So I don't know. We're going to see. The guy certainly is crazy enough to try anything. And it would be cool. I mean, it would bring it new would. life and vibes into the whole world of social media. So let's hope that he shakes things up. Um, I would love that. Absolutely. I, I, I would be, I finally, I would be able to use my official, you know, blue, you know, uh, ribbon that I'm an official Twitter uh, person. So I, I, I think uh, <laughs> finally it's going to, it's going to come out. Two conclusions. I think we all know who the first user will be <laughs> given this powerful speech. So uh, we'll, we'll be watching you, Peter. And in the meantime, I've been analyzing the names of your children, given the X story of uh, Elon Musk. So my only conclusion is now I finally understand why you moved into a bank, uh, because I have P, A, and L. You really care about P and Ls, don't you? <laughs> so that's that must be a passion that we should also follow very, very strictly. Absolutely. P and L. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, very creative, Shelly. I never <laughs> thought about it like that. But um, let's go to another topic that before things get out of hand here. Too creative. Um, Laurence, <laughs> we're yes. going to move to the hot topic of sustainability. Google is working on some interesting things there that you want to share. Yes. I wanted to talk about the fact that Google has launched a new startup accelerator that is completely centered around the circular economy. So What's it about? It's a 10-week virtual-only accelerator program for seeds to Series A tech startups. And what will it offer? Um, Mentoring, training, early access to Google tools, strategic support, partnerships on tech projects, things like that. Just as a small reminder, what is the circular economy again? Well, it is a model where products and existing materials are shared or leased or reused, repaired, recycled, refurbished for as long as possible. And what we all know that the circular economy still has a bit of a do-gooder reputation, even if I think it is and will be of strategic importance. But so it is really interesting in view of that, that Google is jumping on that trend. And why? Well, I think it's interesting because one thing I learned, if you want to see where the future is headed for the moment, then look at where big tech is investing. And so why is Google investing? Well, when people think about the circular economy, they tend to think about reducing waste, which ends up in landfills or in the ocean. And yes, it is that. But Maybe call me cynical, but that is probably not why a company like Google is investing in the circular economy. And I see two reasons that are more fitting with the MO of an organization like a Google to be doing that and to be going in that direction. And one really important one is, I think, the fact that we are looking at a massive raw materials shortage in the future. And Why is that? Well, especially now that we have robotics, we have EVs, we have solar energy, wind energy, even AI where we need chips. Um, All these things are ramping up. And this means that we will need a lot of critical raw materials like lithium, like magnesium, 
cobalts, things like that. Just think about the fact that it is said that the demand will be growing about 500% by 250 of these types of materials. And just as an example, an electric vehicle needs six times as many minerals as um, a conventional vehicle. So on the one hand, we have the fact that we will be needing more materials. And on the other hand, a lot of the raw materials for technologies come from pretty unstable regions or uh, regions that have a difficult relationship with the West. I'm talking about Russia, China, and Brazil uh, being some of the biggest here. So what you are seeing is this new trend where countries are looking locally for raw materials. For instance, the UK is planning to mine for lithium, for zinc, and for copper. Canada for lithium, Australia even more lithium. And so I think that diversifying the, the source of mining will not be enough here. And also we have to be aware of the fact that mining is very damaging for the environment. So here, again, investing in a circular economy approach is probably a really smart thing to do. And so that's one thing, the fact that we are probably looking at a raw materials shortage in the future. The second one has to do with water, I think, because Mining is not only environmentally and socially damaging and energy intensive, it is also one of the most water intensive industries out there. And so why does that matter? Well, think about climate change, which has an, an impact on the fact that we have more heat waves, which also has an impact on the fact that we have, will have more water shortage in the future. And in fact, it's not only the future, but we already see the economic consequences of this, where this summer China had to close down factories because it relied on hydroelectric power. And we also had supply chain problems caused by the low water level of the Rhine. And so the decision of Google here to invest in a circular economy, I think is driven by a real need. Material shortage, geopolitical tensions, climate change and a looming water shortage. And just as a final thing to add, the circular economy still has its limits. For instance, a lot of metals cannot be for 100% recycled and recycling is energy intensive too. So I think it's really, really smart of Google to invest in that. What do you guys think? Maybe, uh, Julie, you spent some time in the States lately to talk about SDGs, to look at how big companies deal with that. If you hear Laurent's story, um, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I follow her reasoning. I think you're absolutely right that we also um, sort of have to follow the money. If big tech in, is investing, they probably also are doing this with certain reasons. And I think this was one of my big takeaways of the trip that we did in New York, because it's where the SDGs, of course, were born. Uh, so we want to hear from the companies, the startups, the business, the VCs there, what they were doing. And I think it's a polarity these days, as Peter mentioned in the beginning, it's pretty hard to find money these days as a startup, but not if you're in climate tech. And we met uh, with an extremely interesting investor in climate tech. Uh, he's been an investor for over a decade, uh, has done more than 300 investments, not only in climate, before also in tech. So, I mean, the guy is watching the space and his name is uh, Murat Aktianogli. Not an easy one, but um, happy to share afterwards if that's easier. But the climate tech market represents $90 trillion a year because simply these problems that Laurence also is hinting to is they need technology that just hasn't been invented yet. So this needs money to make sure that we get there. I loved how he just, yeah, indeed said, this is the greatest opportunity in a generation. And you can also see that that money really is flowing there. 
So I think in general, if you're in climate tech, if you're busy with this, uh, if you're a startup or a larger company, I think it's definitely time to join that conversation. I think the COP conferences, of course, uh, next one is in Ghana in February. Those are the places where you can go and, and also feed that conversation and feed, of course, the money flows as well uh, and where they are going. But uh, Peter, I could also see you uh, nodding on, on Laurent's story. So maybe you can uh, chime in on that. Just to add on to that, I think maybe uh, it's not just big tech. It's, I think, big companies in general. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's just the domain of just the Googles or the Amazons who are going to be thinking about this. I think it's a responsibility for companies in general, and especially the large companies, because they have such an impact. And Julie, I think you probably voiced the same feeling, but we had a chance to spend some time with the United Nations as well, who are, of course, the mother of SDGs. But one of the sobering thoughts that came out of that is that the UN basically says, you know what, there's not all that much that we can do but provide a platform. It's really up to the business enterprises to take their responsibility. So I think this 21st century, whether it's going to go you know, pear-shaped or not, is not going to depend just on the United Nations, but really on do big companies really want to take their responsibility? And I think that's happening, but I think it's more than big tech. I think it's really a shared concern that we all have. And, and I, I am hopeful. I mean, I do see a lot of initiatives, but sometimes it's pretty confusing to actually understand what the real impact is and what the real result of some of these actions is going to be. There is still a lot of data fog and confusion out there. What, what's your feeling about this? If, uh, this is a question that I have. Do you think if you invest in SDGs and you take the lead there, that it will become a positive differentiator? Or do you think that it's going to be a hygiene factor? And if you don't do it, that it has a negative effect, but that it's going to be an investment that is just needed to keep you in the market, but not an investment that will make you win the market. What's your take on that? Personally, I think it's a little bit of a premium today, but that premium is eroding really, really quickly. And really I think fast, it's just though. going to, really, really fast. And mm -hmm. I think it's just going to become a hygiene factor. It's going to become normal. And, and I think it's something that if you don't, you're probably going to get punished or you're going to get you know the negative repercussions from that. But I think the premium today is eroding very, very quickly. It's not just about how others, how governments and how consumers are looking at, at companies. I think, like I said, it's really about becoming a need because if you're a factory in China which had to shut down for several days because there was a water shortage because of climate change, then I think that more and more companies will just need to start thinking about this because it's also a problem. It's an economic problem for them too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to add on that, it's it's just becoming profitable as well. As you said, you have the raw material problem. A lot of these companies, if they look at the raw materials they actually have, if they manage to access them and, and bring them to a market in a different way, just having new business models as well. So it's also a factor of money. And if that's then a positive difference or a premium, that's not for the sake of purpose. That's just the business model behind it because money is really still talking there too. I think on a second notion is, we should just also fuel that conversation in a positive way, I think. Uh, there's a lot of debate on how do we measure sustainability? What is the return on sustainability? We had a great session with an academic in New York, Tonzi Whelan, and she has a sort of model which she calls Rosie, which is the return on sustainability investment. And I mean, a lot of examples to talk about, a lot about the model you can say yes or good. Uh, but I think her point of we're, we're talking all the time about all the things that are wrong about these models or wrong on how we measure but in the end, we're not talking 
about what do we do if we don't measure anything and if we don't do anything about it. I remember the Gigaton project that Peter mentioned from Walmart in the beginning. Mm -hmm. One of the, of the reactions also about Walmart is often, ah, they can do way more. Yes, that's true. But uh, we might also appreciate what they already do. Uh, one gigaton is sort of the same that the EU is saving in CO2. So, I mean, if you compare that, in general, in 2020, we had 31 gigaton in general. So if you save one, I think it's a fairly good effort to do something. And I think as companies, we, we just have to step into that positive conversation and say, mm -hmm. hey, cool. Yes. And what can we do more? And how can we get together to even have a bigger impact? Yeah, true. And and stay away from the SDG extremism eh? because it, it creates negative energy and that isn't helping us forward. I'm, I'm going to switch to the next topic. Peter, you want to talk about regulation. Tell us what you want to share with us. Well, I think um, regulation is hitting the technology wave massively at this moment. And just a couple of things. I mean, one of the things we saw recently is uh, Europe, of course, has been, there's a certain dilemma there, but Europe has been really proud of what it's done in terms of tech regulation over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. I mean, inside the European Commission, for example, there's still a lot of pride on GDPR, whereas maybe a lot of consumers and certainly a lot of businesses are a little bit more skeptical about that. Uh, but recently we saw a wave of new legislation coming and it is very clear we're moved beyond digital. Digital is done, I mean, that is over. But the next wave of technology frontiers is massively being hit with regulation. One of them is artificial intelligence, for example. And we saw a, a very first shot of that uh, just very recently. The European Commission actually proposed product liability rules related to software and particularly to artificial intelligence. Uh, they said that if you buy a product and that product has artificial intelligence embedded, we should find a way to make sure that if something goes wrong with that, that you can actually sue the company, that you have all these rules that protect you as a consumer. And I think it was interesting because most people said, well, how many products are there with artificial intelligence built in and how dangerous are there that you would need these kinds of rules? But you can clearly see that the European Commission is slowly putting more and more regulation on the new frontiers of artificial intelligence. And I'm not sure if that's actually a good thing or a bad thing. I'm conflicted in this because on the one hand you say, of course, I mean, a world where the technology players have free game and there is no legislation is a horrible, scary world. But we have to be careful in Europe that we're not going to overload too much regulation onto the technology world. And I think this little thing here that happened, which is basically the AI liability directive from the European Commission, was just a little thing. But the big one is going to come next year, because next year we're probably going to see the big new AI legislation framework that the European Commission is going to put out there. And one of the hot topics, as you know, Stephen, is things like facial recognition, where the European Commission has said over and over again, they don't want facial recognition. They think it is too dangerous a technology. But I think what we're seeing more and more is that the world of technology and innovation and the world of regulation is clashing more and more and more. Another great example that we saw was just a few weeks ago, we had the acquisition of Roomba by Amazon. And that was really interesting because I don't know if you have an Alexa or not. I, do. I don't know if you have a Roomba or not. But if I ask to an audience, how many of you have an Alexa? 
I don't know, depends on the country, it's between 10% and 30%, right? Mm -hmm. But if I ask my audience who has a Roomba, almost everybody Everyone has a Roomba. Everyone has one. Everybody has a Roomba because they say, well, it's just an uh, innocent device. It just mops the floor and, and just you know, clean stuff up, right? Mm -hmm. And what is interesting is we had Alexa, which you know a lot of people said, this is a spying device, right? Because Amazon is constantly listening and hears our conversations and figures out which crap that you can still buy. But then it introduced a very interesting device, which was you know, the Astro Robot. If you remember about a year, year and a half ago, they said, you know what? We now have a little device that is a little robot that can drive around in your house. And it has a camera and it has a screen and it's $999. And people said, are you kidding me? I mean, Alexa is bad enough. Now we have a robot that drives around in our house and looks where the crap could be stored. That is just unacceptable. So nobody bought it, right? Recently, they tried to reconfigure the Astro into a security guard feature. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was clearly that Amazon went a bridge too far. But when Amazon said, we're buying Roomba for $1.7 billion, which is basically you know, a rounding error for Amazon, uh, we also saw that in the US, we have the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, that says, this is scary because this is a violation of where we think privacy should go. Because you know, we now have almost everybody who has a robot like a Roomba, and it's now owned by the biggest e-commerce company in the world. How do we know that it's not transmitting data, that it's not mapping out our house and seeing what stuff you could still buy? How do we know it's going to do a software upgrade that allows it to actually become a spying device? Mm -hmm. And I think it's an, another great example of the fact that technology innovation and regulation is clashing is is getting head to head and it's my prediction we're going to see even more of that in the next couple of years yeah i agree it's, it's like the example of roomba and amazon it's like facebook buying 23andme imagine what they could do with that data and advertising same yeah, thing yeah but it's interesting because recently oracle for example bought the biggest medical records company in the us for more than $20 billion, I think. I mean, we're gonna see more and more of those acquisitions mm -hmm. where you say, you know what? It's not just buying technology, it's buying data, it's buying access. It's, it's actually buying opportunities to invade more and more privacy. Mm -hmm. And that's where you think we're gonna see more and more regulation. So on the one hand, we need it, but on the other hand, we have to make sure that we're not gonna cut ourselves off because frankly, Personally, I think excluding facial recognition in Europe would be a big mistake. I just want to add that Amazon cannot only see everything and hear everything inside your house with Roomba and Alexa. It can also see everything that happens outside of your house because they have these smart doorbells, right? So yeah, if you combine ring, that... Right? It's actually pretty scary. So I think it's true. We don't need to overregulate, but I think it, it might be good that companies should not have the monopoly of everything that happens inside and outside your house. I think that's a bit scary. It's right, Laurence, but it happens more and more because, I mean, look at what Apple knows with the watches. Look at the health data they're collecting and what are they going to do with that? And mm -hmm. it's a situation where this has gotten way out of hand because there was no regulation. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to see some fierce clashes because all of a sudden the regulators want to claw back and they have no idea how to control this. But you know, one of the most interesting things, I was at Microsoft two weeks ago 
And I heard Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, which was really, really interesting. And Brad, he came in, I don't know if you remember this, but Microsoft got into real, really big regulatory trouble in 2000 when the U.S. government wanted to break up Microsoft because it was an absolute monopoly. I still remember Bill Gates, you know, in those interrogations and he didn't want to say anything and it was, it went viral before there was a, a platform to go viral. But what is fascinating is the lawyer that Bill Gates brought in was Brad Smith. And Brad Smith is now the president of Microsoft. And he has a team of 1,500 people all around the world. And their only focus is tech regulation. Because this is now becoming one of the hottest things in the world of technology. It's the geopolitics of regulation. And for example, in the whole debate in Europe on cloud sovereignty, right? I mean, if you're a European company and you use a cloud provider, more and more the regulation is going to the environment or to the direction that you have to be able to prove as a cloud provider that that data actually doesn't leave the European Union, that it's stored on a server housed within Europe, which is from a technological point of view, absurd Crazy. when you think about it in a global world of the cloud, but that's the type of dealings that you need to have. And what you see is that these tech companies are at par with nation states when they start to debate how that regulatory framework should be laid out. So it's gonna be an extremely interesting topic to keep following. And the problem, Laurence, is with if you have one of those robots of those Roombas, I mean, if you're a little bit scary with your computer or laptop, you can put some duct tape on the camera to make sure that they don't see you anymore. If you do that with the sensors of your Roomba, it's <laughs> going to be really interesting to see how that device will still function. So it's a brilliant move by Amazon to buy that because we cannot disable the cameras or the sensors otherwise. Yeah, it's a worthless thing in our house. But uh, super, super cool topic. We're going to go to the next one. You all know that every month we talk about the future of work. And uh, Laurence, we're going to kick off with you here to discuss some new future of work evolutions. That is correct. Um, so I wanted to talk. <laughs> hey, what is happening? Nothing. Hey? It was funny that you said that is correct. <laughs> I know, that was the next topic on my list. It's correct. It's so sharp, Steve. I agree, I agree, I agree. Thanks for, this, you know? thanks for confirming that, Laurence. <laughs> I thought you were laughing because Peter went away. Okay, but... No, um, I think Peter is just getting some extra tea is what I think. Or coffee, maybe. Okay. Uh, Ask so, his Roomba, you know. Yeah, maybe he's shutting down his Roomba now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I will go on. Yeah. So, uh, what I want to talk about today is how, where and how we work is increasingly becoming impacted by global challenges like geopolitics, like climate change, the energy crisis, a little thing called the pandemic, and the overall recession. And I think a less obvious area of impacts with these things is hybrid work, which has really shown some really fascinating evolutions over the years, a bit like a yo-yo, in fact, because before 2020, we had quite low trust and everything that had to do with hybrid work was pretty artificial. For instance, yes, you can work at home, but it needs to be on these two fixed days. And then we had the pandemic. We know what happened there. Everybody that could work from home did so. This proved that it could be done. 
But also, there were still some trust issues, um, like leaders clinging to the old paradigm because they just did not know how to manage a workforce that was not sitting right in front of them. And just to give an example, uh, eight out of 10 of the biggest employees in America still use monitoring software. Wow. And I just want to add a little thing here also is that I learned an interesting term uh, in a recent Microsoft report, which is called the productivity paranoia, uh, which is the fact that there is a huge disconnect between managers and employees when it comes to productivity. Managers are worried and 85% of them say that the shift to remote work has made it really challenging for them to have confidence that employees are in fact being productive. So that's one. Managers don't trust. And then you have 87% of employees that say that they are indeed being productive inside a hybrid work model. And Microsoft confirms this a bit because the productivity signals that they track across Microsoft 365 have climbed across the last 12 months. So that pandemic and then now that the pandemic is getting better and that the world is opening up again, Quite a few companies want their employees to go back, like Apple, like Microsoft, like Tesla. Of course, the employees seem less interested. But now we are seeing something that is almost surreal. And we are at a point where because of, for instance, the massive energy prices, some companies almost want employees to stay home. And then on the other hand, we have employees that want to go back to the office. Just to give some examples. First, from the company side, we have Meta that is shrinking the size of its offices. It's also closing its office in New York. We have Airbnb that is subleasing its own office space. And this is a really interesting one. We had a few weeks ago in Belgium, we had Yumicor that was asking employees to work from home on Friday so that they do not need to heat the office on that day. And then on the other hand, we have a more employee-centric approach from Fernand Hutz of Cartoon Nasi, who made a suggestion that the governments and companies could fund together energy vouchers for employees. And he was thinking during the five winter months, about 500 euros a month for that. And as a context for people who are not from Belgium, um, the meal vouchers here are one of the most widespread employee benefits so the energy voucher is, in fact, really inspired by that. So that's the employer side. And now the employee side, for them, I think it's more about the freedom to choose. They want probably to be able to go back to the office uh, because they want to save energy or maybe because they just want to see colleagues. They also want to be able to work from home when they can afford it and when they want peace and quiet. And then maybe more extreme, maybe they would want to move somewhere warmer or cheaper altogether. And in fact, this is already happening because I read an article about how Mexico City is apparently becoming the work from home haven for U.S. expats. And we are now seeing this whole new type of middle class economic migration and talking about employees that are moving to cheaper regions. It's also interesting to see that we see companies that are capitalizing on that. For instance, there's Zumper and there's Landing, two companies that offer short-term renting models. And so maybe employees could live where it's warm in the winter for a few months and then go in the summer uh, in a more moderate climate 
for instance, to avoid heat waves, or just maybe they could test out where they want to live. And so if you add all these things together, you are seeing all these fascinating and telling shifts how the outside world is really affecting how and where we work. So I really think that companies will need to become creative here. And I think the energy vouchers of, for instance, Cartoon Nasi is a really good example of that. And yes, I do know that recession and energy crisis have always affected companies and, and employees, but I really think that it's more radical than ever this time. Maybe just to add on to that, I think it's going to be a challenge, I think, to get people to come back to work. I was in Seattle last week and we visited a startup, Limeade. They make an employee experience app. 150 people, we went there. An entire floor of a big building, that was their floor. And we met the CEO. He was there. I think his executive assistant was there. And one guy, and I'm not really sure what he was doing, but three people on the entire floor. And yeah, the CEO said, I'll give you a tour of the office. So we walked around the office and it was all empty. And he said, this is where people used to sit. <laughs> and I said, but why do you still have this office? As he said, we're just waiting for the lease to run out. So I think it's going to have a huge impact. And I think the big companies might be able to enforce that, but I see that smaller companies have real difficulty in getting people to come back. And I do believe, because you know, if you put people together, you get a creative spirit and vibe that is unlike anything you can do remotely. But I think it's really difficult now to get people to come back to the office. Julie, you probably have similar feelings <laughs> about this, right? Yeah, uh, I talked to CEOs last week who uh, who actually, indeed, as Laurent said, um, they were expecting people to come back because of the energy prices. So who really confirmed to expect, hey, this might be a reason why people get back into the office. And hopefully they rediscover that creative collision uh, that you mentioned, I think, uh, Peter, as well, because that's also a trend that we really hear with the groups that we're hosting is everybody's craving to get together and have these conversations about the challenges at hand. Um, at the same time, you see, indeed, as Laurent said, the productivity surveillance tools are going through the roof since the pandemic. That's just been increasing, increasing, increasing. Uh, and likely that's just not the right conversation starter if you want to talk creatively and if you really want to do something together. So you, you clearly see it's a polarity. It's a struggle. It's a search. I think we also, I mean, observe that in the buzzwords of the HR or future of work world of the, of the last year, we had the great resignation. But this summer was all about quiet quitting. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether you, you uh, noticed the term, but you couldn't kind of miss that. And what is quiet quitting? Well, according to The Atlantic, they describe it. It's not actually quitting. Instead, the quitter keeps their job and chooses to do only the bare minimum water than to go above and beyond. So if I translate that somewhere, that's I don't want to resign anymore because, I mean, fairly economically, that's not the best decision you can make these days as well. So I think that's really a pity that we are losing that conversation that was fueled by a pandemic. People really were looking into, do I want to work here? What do I expect from my work? Do I want to work from home or at the office? Or how can I relate to the identity of my employer, to the purpose of my employer? I think that was a huge, interesting trend that was positive to bring actually companies and the people that work in them uh, closer together. But now there's sort of the other side of fear, like the tools, the surveillance tools, you're not productive. I mean, that's not going to help us go anywhere. And somebody that's a quite quitter, 
I mean, those are people that just are not happy in their job. And then the conversation is how can you or make them happy in a job or make sure that they have a job somewhere else that they are happy and that they are productive because usually that just goes hand in hand. I can only see even more strongly that need for conversation, that need for companies to have means to come together and see how are we going to tackle the challenge? Because of course they are there, but honestly, a tool is really not going to solve that. And I hope that by Christmas, we just have a term in the future of work that is positive. I mean, loving your job or something that goes viral on, on TikTok, because if we have to believe the Wall Street Journal, they said this might be about quite firing in the near future. I mean... On TikTok, it was a viral thing in the labor market during the Great Resignation. They said a warm body is better than nobody. We need the people. We need the, we need people around in the office. But what if that changes? I think there will be a lot more problems then. It's a duty, both of an employee as a leader, to find ways to get back into that conversation and not be yeah. quite quitting nor ignoring these people. Yeah, I, I like something that Gary Vaynerchuk also adds to the discussion. You have the Great Resignation, you have quiet quitting. But what most forget is that you have the never apply in the first uh, place generation. <laughs> uh, a whole bunch of people that are just not interested anymore to work for a traditional company or a company that doesn't serve a, a purpose that they align with. So I have this question how this crisis will turn out because every company that I meet is suffering to find the right people or to motivate people. The economy is really bad, but I question if we're going to see a lot of firing in the next couple of months because it seems so difficult once you have the right people to get them back. I mean, if you look to what happened in the airline and airport industry since COVID and the disaster they have because they don't find people that are willing to come back anymore after they fire them, I think a lot of companies will think twice before they start firing people, knowing that one day you're going to need new talent. And if they're not willing to come back. How will you deal with that? I think that's going to be so interesting to follow that decision making in the next couple of years or months, probably. That's true. But then again, I think the right thing to do is still to get into that conversation. If you have people around, but they're not happy in their job, even then you have to have that conversation. Sure. I think. Yeah, um, I agree. We're going to move to the last topics that we have. It's on Web3. And I know, Peter, you have a hard stop, so you may have to leave this uh, recording a few minutes earlier than the rest of us. So I'm going to start with your topic on Web3. And this is amazing. Uh, we have Peter Hinz in here, ladies and gentlemen, that added a topic about Kim Kardashian that we can all live it's one of my if, It's one of my it's, life it's goals, Stephen. So it I'm happens. glad I can, I can check that <laughs> off, uh, putting Kim Kardashian into our podcast. So that's... Uh, Brilliant. No, but... Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I, yeah, I think uh, Kim Kardashian is somebody that I have a lot of respect for because I think what she has done in leveraging her brand is just absolutely amazing. amazing. Yeah, I agree. Really, really amazing. But um, she was fined just recently $1.3 million by the Security and Exchange Commission because she promoted uh, a cryptocurrency on Instagram. Apparently, she was paid $250,000, so a quarter of a million dollars. She now has a $1.3 million fine, so that's not so good. And what she did on Instagram is she promoted Ethereum Max, uh, which was, in hindsight, a scam, like so many cryptocurrencies that were an absolute disaster. If you bought the crypto tokens that Kim Kardashian was promoting, at the moment that she promoted, you would have lost 95% of your money by now. 
And what you now see is that the Security and Exchange Commission is saying this is unacceptable. I mean, it goes back to the regulation we talked about earlier, but this is now in finance. And the Security and Exchange Commission, I think, is one of the most adamant in the world uh, because in the U.S. they say crypto is out of control. It's the Wild West uh, country. And if you remember the Super Bowl this year, it was all about cryptocurrencies, right? right? I mean, we had people like LeBron James and Larry David, and they were all promoting crypto. And they were promoting companies like eToro and Crypto.com and Coinbase. But, you know, there is one thing to promote a platform like Coinbase, there's another thing to really promote one particular currency. And the Security and Exchange Commission says that's like advising people to buy a stock. And if you do that, there are all sorts of rules that you have to abide by. And that is something where Kim Kardashian clearly stepped over the line. I would be really surprised if she is the first and the last to be fined by the Securities and Exchange Commission. If you remember, not too long ago, we had people like Matt Damon you know, doing commercials on crypto. And it's, it, it was really fashionable in the last 12 months to really promote this. Uh, but it clearly shows that the Wild West of Web3 is over. And of course, it's sobering because... The Wall Street Journal had a wonderful title. They said, the crypto firms that bought the Super Bowl ads aren't so super anymore. You know? And that is very, very true. But in this case, it's Kim Kardashian who has to pay the price, unfortunately. Okay. Well, I want to stay on the topic of uh, Web3 and NFTs. This week, there was a press release that came out from Warner Music that they're going to partner up with OpenSea. I thought this is an interesting use case because it's something or an example, at least, that we talked about earlier in other episodes of Radar. I think all of us believe that the creative industry and Web3 is probably the best place to kick off all these Web3 applications. And it's interesting that this is happening in the music industry. Because, you know, today, just to illustrate the context, imagine today that you're a good singer-songwriter, but you can't find a record company that wants to give you a contract. In the old days, it was game over and you had to play on the streets and hopefully make some money there. Today, you have the possibility to launch an NFT that has a smart contract in it so your early buyers can listen to your music, but you can also make them part of your brand and maybe include a deal that 10% of your revenues, of your royalties will go back to the NFT holders of your first album, which makes them more than just fans. They become ambassadors. There's a shared interest if... You, as a singer-songwriter, are making a lot of money. It means that your early fans will make a lot of money as well. So they won't just be fans. They will promote you like crazy because it's a good deal for them. And it's also a good deal for the artist because in a traditional record deal, 90% of the revenues go to the record company, 10% go to the creative talent, which isn't in line anymore with how the world functions today. In In the old world, the record company did all the promotion and all the PR efforts. I mean, today, as an artist, you do that yourself on your social channel. So the 90-10 is maybe something from the pre-social media era. But if you create an NFT as an artist, you can say 90% of those revenues are for me and 10% are for my followers. So you make more money and your fans make money as well. So this is a concept, I think, that we're going to see more and more. That's why I think it's fascinating that Warner Music is now partnering up with OpenSea. In all honesty, when you read their press release, it's pretty unclear what they will do. I don't think they will go to the core of their business, uh, which is killing potentially their own business model. It looks like they're going to invite their artists that they have a deal with 
to drop some NFTs on the site is my feeling. As an extra opportunity to create a Web3 community and as a nice-to-have add-on. That, that's how I read their press release. I think the real opportunity for Warner would be to completely reinvent their business. Huh? Because I'm afraid if they don't do that, that it's going to be the same as with traditional records and DVDs and CDs that had to fight against iTunes. They had a gimmick online, but they still were printing CDs. I think the same could be true here. But on the other hand, if I look at it from a positive side, the fact that they are experimenting, that they are partnering up and that they are looking at the opportunities may give them a head start to eventually change their business model. So we'll, we'll see how this goes, but it shows how Web3 and, and the music industry are becoming a really interesting use case. Yeah, it really makes me think that that story, like, should it indeed be one or the other? And can't they really indeed build it multi-channel as well and then just make sure that they win in, on all fronts? I was really impressed when we were at Walmart. We had a um, last mile presentation, mm -hmm. like how they moved into nurturing, of course, their brick and mortar stores, the power of that and making sure that in store there are innovations at work. To the other part, like how can we make sure that every single moment in a customer journey is answered by something? And there you, you really saw the combination of we want to own and e-commerce and brick and mortar. And so it was just resonating like, Yeah, actually, why should they choose? Why can't they just own both worlds, I would say? Yeah, true. Maybe this is the word of this episode. And <laughs> uh, I think very often we always want to choose between two things and, and put things in one or the other box. Why can't we be in both boxes? Uh, it's and. We want to do multiple things together. Yeah, that's the word of this episode. Uh, you make me very uh, happy. There's a, an internal agree? quote at Nextworks, Stephen, and that is, we are an and company. So I, I couldn't agree more. Look, we go look, and to is... India and to Paris and to San Francisco. <laughs> Here we go, Julie. This is what we like. This is exciting. And so, okay, with this positive note, I'm going to end this episode here of Radar. The new season, season three of Radar has started, ladies and gentlemen. So thank you for listening to this podcast. And of course... See you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.